0: everyone welcome to the char podcast this is your host kushal mehra so time for part two of our discussion on the up conversion law this time we are going to be covering the legal aspects of uh, the latest i don't know what to call it love jihad laws Whatever you want to call it. So in, just to give you guys a recap of uh, what we had covered the last time. So the last time I had invited Swati Goel Sharma on the podcast and we had covered what I like to call the ground reality. Swati was just stating uh, some of the cases that she had covered. Uh, if In case you have not watched the, that podcast, uh, I would highly recommend you guys go and watch that too. So that you get a perspective of what happens on the ground. Now, this is not a judgment on how deep the problem is or how much uh, of uh, of a menace it is in terms of uh, hard data. And even Swati was very honest in the podcast that she said she does not have any hard data as such, but she faces this uh, p- Problem a lot, but today we are going to be focusing uh, on the legal aspects of this, and I'm very happy that uh, we have Nikhil Mehra with us on the podcast. Nikhil, uh, thanks a lot for coming and having a chat with me. Okay,
1: thanks for having me on this. Uh, which was a very interesting issue and quite a complex one. Many many layers to this. Uh, I, I don't know how you want to go about this. You you want to pose questions to me first, up or
0: so yeah, so. Uh, uh, Let us put it this way so, Nikhil, I am genuinely confused on this topic, so I will share my view first so that you get a perspective of where I'm coming from. So, I was actually having a discussion on uh, this kid's podcast recently, and he asked me, What do you think? As what do I think at an individual level about this? Um, So, here's which kid? I
1: understand the uh, brand idea of the podcast world, but if you're calling people kids, I want to know which kid.
0: This is young 20-year-old from IIT.
1: Okay, so kid is kid is fairly
0: okay, problem. So uh so his question to me wasn't so this is where I stand. So is there a grooming problem in India? I would say yes, there is a grooming problem in India. The, the, uh, even though I don't know how deep is it, I mean, in my view, it is a st- problem that should be taken seriously from whatever I've worked in in slums and, and lower income groups in India. I know this problem is serious. I mean, anybody who goes and talks to a policeman will actually, uh, the policeman will also acknowledge that a lot of the complaints made at the local level, at the uh, Puthana level, are many times in relation to these kinds of issues. These kinds of issues. But here's where I deviate from what i would call uh is um i don't know a majority or a consensus opinion on social media where people feel this can be solved with a law and what i want to start with uh, you today in this podcast is my first question to you is that where do we stand legally in terms of anti-conversion laws in India. So first, I would request you to explain, is this a central issue or is this a state issue? From what I understand, there are different states who have different anti-conversion laws starting all the way back from 1955, if I remember, and if my memory serves me correctly. So, So can you explain to us the legal history of conversion in India and how these laws have developed?
1: See, I I don't know how much of a purpose legal history will serve, but uh, yes, you're right. These came in the mid-50s. They were actually uh, passed by various governments in various states. The tenor and tone of those laws used to be slightly different from... Uh, what I wanted to refer to first is... So the first thing that I want to point out to you is that legal history is not going to serve the purpose here because the past laws weren't necessarily in relation to this. They were really about mass conversions. And that was a real problem at that point in time. And it was in a sense about maintaining your flock for the Hindu side. But a larger point of can laws of conversion, laws of propagation survive in a context where the majority religion is a non proselytizing religion, right? So do you draw parity or are you ipso facto just picking up laws of religious freedom, as they call them in the US, UK, and even in certain uh, international covenants and applying them just blanket to India without understanding the context of India. And, And so in that sense, maybe our secularism also has a completely different flavor to secularism in other countries, which has a Christianized element to it. I mean, there are aspects of Christianity that their secularism protects over and above the application of law. France may be an exception, but many other countries, they do that. Right? So th- that, that was a completely different phase, right? Now, I know you focused a lot on Love Jihad and Swati came and spoke about various cases that she's seen on the ground. And even the topic here spoke of Love Jihad, but the law itself is extremely broad, right? The, the new legislative, new ordinance passed by UP covers various ambits of conversion and in fact their justification in the counter affidavit that they filed below allahabad high court is also quite interesting it's very brief it is repetitively problematic that it is absent of data but it creates some very interesting conceptual points right and it's sort of turning the debate on its head in a certain sense <clears throat> so uh, what i want to do first is to just take you through the law through the bare enactment as it stands. And I'm going to use the UP ordinance as it stands today as the standard for this, as opposed to going to the Uttarakhand law. The UP law is broader and maybe more detailed. And I find aspects of it are very problematic. Aspects of it are, in fact, in conflict of legal positions that have been fixed in India for a long time already, right? in completely secular spheres, not pertaining at all to a religion analysis of individuals but of group rights. So I, I will show to you and demonstrate to you that where the UP laws defense in the counter affidavit places and in my opinion wrongly the group right above the individual right but even in doing so they will fall afoul. Their definition itself will fall afoul of certain very particularized aspects of Indian law which have been uh, repeatedly held to be accurate. Right. So uh, I wanted to first read out the Statement of Objects and Reasons. Uh, And it says, uh, an ordinance to provide for prohibition of unlawful conversion from one religion to another by misrepresentation, force, undue influence, coercion, allurement, very important concept, or by any fraudulent means or by marriage. Now marriage by itself doesn't convert anybody. Right. But what if I choose to convert for marriage? This law is going to say any conversion whatsoever. I can't accept it whatsoever.
0: Oh, That's bad.
1: That's what I'm trying. This is why I want to just read out the provision of the law. And we'll discuss this after that. Okay. Now, the next point I want to come to is section 2A of the definition clause, which is allurement. And allurement is defined as means and include. So it's an inclusive definition. That means it's not an exhaustive definition. You can add other elements to allurement and it will not be limited to the three enumerated circumstances of allurement that are stated in the definition as it is passed. The three stated circumstances are any gift, gratification, easy money, or material benefit either in cash or kind. Right? Employment, free education and reputed school run by any religious body. Or better lifestyle, divine displeasure or otherwise. Now, as an individualist, please tell me if I choose to compromise any element of my conscience for any of these things, is that really a problem, first and foremost?
0: I mean, uh, I have to say, uh, I can only say in Zamaamul Hakke style, the boys have really played played well because this this is (laughs) I mean, what is this? How can you write an ordinance like this? Who are these people who design laws in India?
1: (laughs) So as we go along, one theme that I want to show to you is this is a law written with a homogenized understanding of Hinduism. And a centralized understanding of how and in what manner it ought to be protected which is decided at a group level and impelled upon to every Hindu as an individual level. Okay, that's my thematic construction of this act, but I'll go further in my definition. definitional, Definitional uh, reading of this. Now fraudulent means includes impersonation of any kind, impersonation by false names, surname, religious, simple or otherwise. This pertains to a lot of what you and had discussed last time right now, I'm just this is just a definition we're not going any further right now this they have been adventurous enough to define religion as well and they oh no,
0: s- they did
1: yeah they are very very adventurous religion means any organized system of worship pattern faith belief worship or lifestyle as prevailing in India or any part of it And defined under any law or custom for the time being in force. There are a lot of... So, let's be clear here. Worship pattern, faith, belief, worship or lifestyle. Now, faith and belief can exist beyond the divine.
0: Yeah. So, uh, so let me give you a very bad example.
1: You could have non-divine based religions as per this definition.
0: Yeah, yeah. so I was just going to say, is a football club too. You have faith in Man U or something of that sort, right?
1: It's a cult apparently now. It's a sect. So what what I'm driving at is, you don't draft criminal laws this way. You have to be precise about what crimes you're aiming at. There is a very simple concept which is couched in all kinds of legalese, but quite simply put, a legislation is meant to deal with a specific mischief. When you read definitions that are so broad, it is unclear to me the full scale of the mischief that you're trying to deal with. It looks like you're trying to reorder all life. Right. You're trying to reorder the entire lifestyle. You're not empowered to do that through a legislation.
0: Now, see, I don't get it. So the argument I hear from people who are sympathetic to this law has always been that...
1: can, I, can, I, can I interject? But let, let me just advise this. Let me read the act and you bring out these arguments after that. The problem I have with any arguments that I'm hearing is people are speaking in generalities. Okay. But well, we got to deal with the specifics. So if, if I am on the podcast, my okay. job is to educate people on the actual specifics of what is going to be applied. What is... you know. You you can't have a general kite, kite flying competition, oh secularism is damaged in India, oh, but the but conversion is a problem. All of this is fine. But what are you what are you exactly doing about it? That's the law, right? I mean, that's the law that you have to look at. So now you come with a broad, and this is a this is a legal device that is of import to our discussion. You now come with no person shall convert or attempt to convert either directly or otherwise, any other person from one religion to another. By use of practice of misrepresentation, force, undue influence, coercion, allurement, or by any fraudulent means, or by marriage. So, marriage is a separate head. Correct? Nor shall any person abet, can I, convince, or conspire such uh, conversion. With a very interesting proviso. Provided that if any person reconverts to his or her immediate previous religion, the same shall not be deemed to be a conversion under this order. Hey? Why do they put this? Yeah, yeah. Let, let me explain this. Why do they put this clause in? Because what happens is, supposing I... What they're trying to say is that if I was a Hindu, I converted to Islam. Let's take that in because that seems to be the most... The example that exercises people the most. If I then convert back to Hinduism, all the rules that will follow, and I am going to show you some truly heinous rules for conversion that will follow, will not apply to that reconversion. Because that is, in a true sense, a ghar wapsi. So this proviso is a vital proviso. It may be two lines, but it gives a total and complete protection to the concept of ghar wapsi, therefore placing... Conversions by way of Gharwapsi on a different footing. Because to any Muslim in India, you can turn around and say your early religion was Hinduism. It may have been 500 years ago or a thousand years ago, right? But if I reconvert you back to that, none of the rules that will apply in this act to everybody else will apply to you.
0: Okay, can I just make a small comment here? <laughs> Somebody
1: yeah. comes and says, Chacha, it's a cheating kar rahe ho. न, <laughs> oh This is like we're i don't even on the am going to not and the dessert's going to be a spectacular one. Anyway, moving forward, the next section is any aggrieved person. Now, the aggrieved person is the person who is converted. Okay? Any aggrieved person, his or her parents, brother, sister, or any other person who is related to him or her by blood, marriage, or adoption may lodge a first information report of such conversion, which contravenes the provisions of this section. So now you can imagine the problems this poses. Families may be unhappy about the fact that there is an interfaith marriage. Often are. The law, as I'm going to show to you through various judgments, has been clear that once you reach the age of majority, The decision of marriage is yours and yours alone. Okay. But this act will come and say that at least to the, to the registration of the first information report, the parents or any other person who has a problem, who is related to you in some way or the other can file that complaint. Eventually that complaint may go nowhere. But you have created a serious disruption in the lives of persons who otherwise have a clear and unambiguous right to exercise their freedom to marry a person of their choice. Right? And people may think this is not egregious. To me, this is
0: exceptionally egregious. Oh, yes. This is, I mean, I. Uh, shadi kar ki koi aur kar yeah, you. So now, when you consider
1: in the light of this provision, All these news reports that have been coming out of late after this ordinance was passed, because when it's UP, the spotlight is bright and glaring. When it was Uttarakhand, the spotlight wasn't bright and glaring. By the way, Uttarakhand has had this since 2018, not merely as an ordinance, but as an act passed by their legislature. But nobody's really shown a light on it. But because it's UP, it's Yogi Adityanath, so on and so forth, you get that much more uh, you get that much more Spotlight upon it, right? And so what what emerges from it? Case after case after case, the complainant is the family. People are picked up. Boy is typically picked up. Girl comes and says, I'm married and willing. Police puts pressure. Six days, seven days, they ruin their lives. Eventually, they can't do a thing. Person is released. Why? Because the law is set, set, set in this man. Now, you tell me, are their rights not violated in that one instant?
0: Oh, yes, they are.
1: Totally agree. Totally agree. Now, Now, Like I said, there's a lot here. Let me go forward now. Now, the punishment sections. This is also split into two. Because let's be clear, this is not a conversion solely for the purpose of marriage. So it's not just a love jihad conversion. Any kind of conversion is covered by these laws. Right? So it creates a distinction. And what it says is, Whoever contravenes the provisions of, sex, of section 3 shall, without prejudice to any civil liability, be punished with imprisonment for a term which shall not be less than one year, which may extend to five years, and shall also be liable to a fine, blah, blah. Right? Except there's a second proviso. Provided that what whoever contravenes the provision of section 3 in respect of a minor, a woman, a person belonging to scheduled caste or scheduled tribe, shall be punished with imprisonment, which shall not be less than 2 years and may extend to 10 years. So you again draw ten, a distinction?
0: Equivalent. 10 years. 10 years? 10 years. What,
1: Right. So, let me give you a small example from the allurement thing. Uh, let's go back to that definition. Actually, I'll tell you what, let me read the act out. And then I'll come back to various interpretative problems, right? Because as I see it, and from what I can see from your reaction, and I hope that's also coming through to everybody who's watching, just a reading of the act shows there are problems. Yeah. Right now, any marriage, this is section six. And this creates, before I read it, let me give you a comment. This creates massive evidentiary issues. And a huge, huge scope for the police to harass me. Okay. Any marriage which was done for sole purpose of unlawful conversion. I don't know what a sole purpose is or how you determine it, but sole purpose of unlawful conversion, or vice versa. That is, what is vice versa? A conversion that is done solely for the purpose of the marriage, right? By the man of one religion with the woman of another religion, either by converting himself or herself before or after marriage. Or by converting the woman before or after marriage. Shall be declared void by the family court or where the family court is not established a court having jurisdiction to try such case or not. So the marriage is void. Right? Now, you understand when I say the evidentiary issue is sole purpose. How do you determine this? Right. When I take a decision to get to convert to get married, I understand I have first and foremost a legal impediment because certain because marriage is an aspect of personal laws. Certain personal laws only permit marriage between persons of certain communities or of persons within that sole community. The Hindu Marriage Act being one where only two Hindus can get married. Now the definition of Hindus is broader, but only two Hindus can get married. If a Hindu and a Muslim are to get married, it cannot be a marriage uh, solemnized under the HMA. The Hindu Marriage Act. Right. So it applies both ways. I'm just trying to say that all sides tend to create these penned up situations. And what we're now seeing is a law where the dominant, the majority side says, OK, i have got to start protecting my flock a little bit better. I'm I'm going to make my fences a little strong. Right now, Section 8 one who now this, this this is this is the entree right so the law is generous enough to say not everything is forceful not everything is for Leomond not everything is coercive you can have genuine conversions but the onus is on you as an individual before you can act on your impulse to convert to convince the state that your conversion is going to be a valid and Consensual conversion. How do you go about that?
0: How does one, one enter One e- e- minute? So, my question is: how does how so, can a law decide this?
1: We'll get to oh, fundamental questions. So,
0: This is a beauty.
1: One who desires to convert his or her religion shall give a declaration in the form prescribed in Schedule One. At least sixty days in advance to the district magistrate or the additional district magistrate, specially authorized by the district magistrate, magistrate that he wishes to convert his or her religion on his or her own, her own, and without his or her free consent and without any force, coercion, undue influence, or. Alert. I want this is like a mic drop moment for me. Sixty days <laughs> is the notice you have to give. Now, when you said that love jihad may well be rampant and particularly rampant in uh, poorer communities, do you think poorer communities have the legal means to comply with such a provision? Hell no. Right. So, what is this? This is effectively a bar in the face of an enabling provision. Mm. Let me go down further, and because this, these are, some of these are just absolute beauties, the religious converter like a catalytic converter, we have a religious converter who performs conversion ceremony for converting any person of one religion to another religion shall give one month's advance notice in the form prescribed in Schedule 2 of the conversion to the district magistrate and other officers not below the rank of additional district magistrate appointed for that purpose by the district magistrate. Right? So two levels of notices to be given. And only then will we say that your conscientious decision to convert is a valid decision. Mm. Now, the punishments for this are different. Whoever contravenes the provision of subsection one shall be punished with imprisonment for a term which shall not be less than six months, but may extend to three years and shall be liable to a fine which shall not be less than rupees 10,000. This will be over and above the other punishment. right? Whoever contravenes provisions of subsection 2, that is a religious converter, right? the person who does the conversion, shall be punishment with an imprisonment which shall not be less than one year and may extend to up, up to five years. Now, at this moment, I'm hoping that we have some repeat audience. Please bear in mind, these are non-bailable offenses. right? Wait, what? Yeah, yeah. non-bailable, cognizable offenses. You remember the podcast I did on this issue? Take all of that fear that I put into everybody's mind and apply it to the manner in which the police can act.
0: Oh my God.
1: Right. Now, I wanted to come and make a couple of points on uh, interpretation before we even go to the more basic questions. Right now, let's go. Right, my favorite definition in all of the law that I've ever read is this allurement definition. It's an it's absolute beauty. Allurement means and includes an offer to, or any temptation in the form of, and I'm going to focus on something specific, employment, free, education, and reputed school run by any religious body. Right? Now, this free education in reputed school run by any religious body, under Article 29 and 30, minorities have a right to run their own religious institutions. Repeatedly, the Supreme Court has held that certain laws that apply to non-majority, non-minority majority non schools will not apply to minority schools. So, for example, they can choose their students. They can choose to make them only minority students. Right? They can choose to waive fees for certain people if they want. And include fees for other people. Because management of those institutions cannot be interfered with by the state. So by a
0: valid
1: law as it exists today, a religious body can have a school which it runs where it says, I have a certain school. I am going to give free education to X percentage of people. Right. And they will have to be from my community. I am a, a poor SCST person in that area. I see this as a great route forward. I choose to convert. And I put my child through the, into the school. I could possibly fit under the definition of a Yeah,
0: I was just thinking about that very scenario even before you said that. Something to right. that sort. Of, that if I want to take the benefit of getting into a Catholic school and then <laughs> game over.
1: The only way I get around it is if I do the 60-day notice period and then the 30-day notice period for the converter.
0: Oh, my God. I mean, I'm holding my questions. I want you to read all... No, yeah, I want to read a couple
1: of, couple of small points. Let's see, this is appalling for me. Okay, But let me go a step further. This 60-day notice period, okay... Is not unknown to Indian law when it comes to marriages because we just seem to have a huge problem with interfaith marriages in this country. It exists in the Special Marriage Act as well and has been recently struck down by the Allahabad High Court. In the Special Marriage Act, you have to first put a notice across uh, a notice uh, saying that you two people intend to marry, and that used to be basically a red rag to a bull. Every single organization on the ground that doesn't want interfaith marriages used to intercede and launch protests against it. Right. But the least that it does is that interfaith marriages, we recognize fully, have been basis of honor killings. They have been basis for violence from various communities. But now what you want is for those people who may be consensual adults and who, in fact, if they are following the 60 day notice period, are consensual adults, even by the process of this law. Right, are now to reveal their identities, reveal their uh, place of uh, place of existence, and invite upon to themselves the violence that may fall.
0: (laughs) I'm just speechless.
1: So I want to now come back to the problems that Swati identified. Right, where are they addressed here? They're not. They are addressed in a no, no. They are. But with an elephant's foot.
0: With yeah, such a it... Yeah, so that's, that's not a... throwing the baby out okay. with the backwater.
1: Right. That's not called addressing. That's not called That is why my starting hypothesis was this is a law passed with a conception of a homogenized Hindu society with a centralized rulemaking power, where that centralized rulemaking power is setting rules that are supposed to override individual Hindu liberties in order to protect the flock. That is the way this law has been set
0: up. So so if, uh, would my analysis on the basis of this law be that now we are reaching at a tipping point of our life in our conceptualization of our Hinduness where our collective identity as Hindus is going to be decided by a bunch of uh, Hindus who believe that collective Hinduism is far more important than that individualistic streak of Hinduism that a lot of Hindus like you and I have? Yes,
1: but the problem there that we have, right? That if you don't affirm the constitution repeatedly, then this group of Hindus that you refer to are actually doing it after a democratic process. Let's be clear. They have won state elections. They have come to power. They are passing laws after coming to power. Okay, And opponents to your logic to our, or to our logic are going to turn around and say, well, why don't they get voted out? Because elections are not binary. That's the problem. Okay, Elections are not done on simple one single issue. And they're not binary on that one issue. They are on much broader considerations. So what you have left, you have what you have left is a challenge under the constitutional provisions. right? Mm. So I would look at this and say, I'm sorry, your criminal law is too imprecise and too vague. It is unclear as to what you actually want from people. And the procedure that you have established for regulating my consent is too onerous. The mm. 60 day notice period, 30 day notice period is too onerous. And in fact, the procedure is designed to make persons who wish to engage in interfaith marriage susceptible to the vulnerabilities that are, let's be clear about this. You don't give me statistics on how many love jihad cases you've seen in UP. Correct? I am therefore not obliged to give you statistics on how many uh, honor killing cases I've seen.
0: Hmm.
1: If your reality exists, my reality exists. Your notice provision makes people vulnerable. Mm. Okay. And this is why when we were discussing in the lead up to this podcast, how to go about it, I kept telling you, I have a huge problem. I don't have a problem. You pass this law with data. You know why? Because then you wouldn't pass such a law. You would pass a much more tailored law because you've done a proper study of what is going on. What is the actual procedure? Who are you looking at? Are there actual gangs? Are there individuals that are doing these cases? How many cases are there? How many net cases of interfaith marriages are there? How many in how many of these cases do you see fraud? Okay, if you see fraud in a small percentage, then how do you react? If you see fraud in a larger percentage, then how do you react? You have none of that data, right? So let me give you shorter routes out of this, right? Before sure. I even go further, before I even go further, the uh, because the UP the Uttarakhand legislation is an act of their legislative council right they were good enough to provide a statement of objects and reasons okay and it's 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 a it's a detailed word salad and it's very interesting in certain parts and i'll read out certain specific parts the constitution confers confers on each individual the fundamental right to profess practice and propagate his religion by the way this word propagate is unique to our constitution However, the individual right to freedom of conscience and religion cannot extend, cannot be extended to construe a collective right to proselytize. What does this even mean? Kuchat? In the in the context of an individual who wants to convert, what does this mean?
0: So this means basically I have no choice.
1: Right. So what they have, I, I, this is where I'm going to come to the UP. Uh, counter-affidavit, because they justify this absence of choice on the highest constitutional principles. You're going to love the inversion of the individual right that they've committed. there. It's an absolute beauty. It's the sort of constitutional language when I look at. I think the Supreme Court deserves this because the Supreme Court has been giving us word salad judgments for so long that everybody can play engage in the same kite flying. You're not precise in your judgments. You keep putting principles everywhere and anywhere and you want to write thousands of words where 20 will suffice. So this is what the others do as well. But let me read this further.
0: Okay, go ahead. Go ahead.
1: For the right to religious freedom belongs equally to the person converting and the individual sought to be converted. They are very tricky in acting as if a person converting is doing it with a rod on your head. Now, look at your love jihad cases. At the moment of conversion. It may well be because of a misrepresentation of fact. The actual act of conversion is a voluntary one. Correct? Excluding for a moment the, the misrepresentation of fact. After the misrepresentation of fact comes to light, that is when you need to correct the situation. What can you do to correct the situation? Those are the questions before us. The answer to me is not this law. Okay, but I'll come to what the answer could be. We'll keep that for a little later. Now, look at the generality of the language. Still, there have been umpteen cases of religious conversions. This is a legislature. I'm sorry, a legislature, when it is passing a law restrictive of individual rights, doesn't get to use words like umpteen cases. You have to be more particular.
0: You have to give citations at at least.
1: Do a study. Tell us what you've seen, what you haven't seen. This can't be. I have a feeling. Still, there have been umpteen cases of religious conversions, both mass and individual. Obviously, such in incidents have been hotly debated, more so in a multi-religious society like ours. The presence of pseudo-social organizations with a hidden agenda to convert the vulnerable sections of other religions has been noticed. There have been instances when gullible people have been converted by offering allurement or undue influence. Some have been forced to convert to other religions. Do you really think that, again, so this is what I come back to. This is a centralized Hindu entity saying, we are going to now compel your individual rights to fall under our umbrella. I, as an individual under article 19, A, and the right to conscience. So, so, so like, like, this is a, this is a formulation I've worked on for years. Let me tell you about it. fact, I have discussed this with Gautam and a number of others on Twitter at several, on several occasions. right? I don't understand this freedom of religion. I really don't understand it. Okay. The freedom of religion, as far as I'm concerned, is the freedom of conscience. Plus the freedom of speech, plus the freedom of association and on occasion, freedom of uh, your right to life, right? Whenever liberty in life is being uh, restricted because of it. If I add these four up, that's the entirety of what religion should constitute. So I don't understand why a specific freedom of religion is necessary. It is necessary because you are accommodating group rights. Now you're taking those group rights to another level where you want to subjugate individual rights. And let me be clear about this. When I read this, the UP affidavit clearly says... All individual rights stand subjugated to group rights. This is the basis and the thinking behind these laws. I want this to be clear. I'm going to do this by citation, word by word. I'm reading out stuff here from Mm. official documentation. I'm not making this up. Mm. There's some absolutely gorgeous stuff that they do here after this. We have come across. Incidents in which an agenda to increase the strength of their own religion by getting people from other religions converted to their own religion. People do marry girls of other religion by misrepresentation of their own religion. And after getting marriages to such, marriage to such girls, they get them converted to their own religion. They could have said this a lot easier. But again, no specificity. No specificity whatsoever. You're dealing with one state. Uttarakhand, you could have said, Itani hamari districts hai. In our specific districts, these are the number of cases. We have seen so many complaints. When when we have seen so many complaints, we find that we don't have the law to deal with this. I'm not even, I mean, I'm not even reached that issue of was this law necessary. I'm going to come to that much later. Because there's enough, in my opinion, in the IPC that could have dealt with these things. There's enough that you don't even need to criminalize and you could have dealt with many things. Right? But this is where it stands now. Several instances come and notice that people convert themselves to other religions only for the purpose of marriage with that girl of that religion. And after marriage, they got that girl converted into their own religion. Now, they cite something. Recently, Honorable Supreme Court also took judicial notice of such instances in the cases of Shafin Jahan versus Ashokan KM. You know what Shafin Jahan versus Ashokan KM is? No, no. This please, is the please, famous, The famous Hadiyah case, if you recall uh, Hadiyah's case.
0: Yeah, 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 yeah.
1: They cite to this case, when I read the Supreme Court extracts in relation to all these allegations, they run completely counter. So this is how a factual this entire exercise is. They just want to show that a case has reached the Supreme Court. Therefore, it is in the notice of the Supreme Court. But the Supreme Court is doing something completely contrary. And I'll read that. Let me give you a counter example to that. Cow slaughter. Supreme Court had a massive PIL relation to cow slaughter. Recognized the problem of the theft of cows. Recognized that this had to be stopped. Recognized that this was a, a, a public order problem. right? And after that, when you turn around and say there have been cases of cow slaughter, you have the data, you have all of the laws that have been passed in relation to it, you have various orders of the Supreme Court recognizing all of this. You have much more concrete, real-world incidents and events individually, and as collected by his data in relation to such an issue. You do not in this case. I want to read to you this, this theme from uh, Hadia's case. Just give me a second. I've collected a lot of papers for this today. Yeah. <coughs> Just a small background. Hadiah is a convert. She marries a Muslim man. First, an NIA case filed that she is going to be transported to ISIS. Right? Hadiya comes to court and says, I did this willingly. It's all good. Writ petition gets withdrawn. Because she had filed it saying, please stop bothering me. Then, and this will hark back to the provision that I read from the law. Her parents file a petition saying, my daughter is gullible. My daughter doesn't know what she's thinking. I want my daughter back.
0: So basically, these laws, uh, uh, by default, assume women are stupid
1: to an extent. Yes, or anybody I mean, who wishes to get, or anybody who wishes to get converted. To Nikhil, precise, let's no? get
0: real. Let's get real. It is always about the woman. It is never about the man.
1: I am. I am. I understand that. But but let's be clear. It's not about being stupid. There is a presumption that if you alter your conscience, and I'm now talking legal language, if you alter your conscience to such a degree that you are willing to alter your religion, you must be gullible. You must be weak.
0: That's a total destruction of individual agency. Not only that, that's bad psychology.
1: Well, I mean, I've shown you the level of firm data that they're operating on. So, I mean, (laughs) let's forget about theories of psychology altogether. But let me read a bit about this, what the Supreme Court actually says. So what the High Court then does is it exercises its powers under a a principle called parents' portraying, which is essentially that we are effectively your parent. That's really what it does. And now we are taking the power to do two things. One, annul your marriage. Well, beyond the scope of a constitutional court, absolutely no business annulling marriage this way, but they do so, and we are going to hand you over to your father. This is a majority. This is a major girl. I'm, let's be clear. I'm not taking a case of a minor person. here. She's attained the age of minority. She's 24. Now let's see what the Supreme Court says. In the instant case, the high court, as is noticeable from the impugned verdict, has been erroneously guided by some kind of social phenomena that was frescoed before it. You know, Deepak Mishra was one of my favorite chief justices. He used great language at times. Uh, I mean, a very liberal man who was badly and unfairly tarnished by certain groups within the Supreme Court. A judge that I really liked a lot. The writ court has taken exception to the marriage of the respondent number 9 herein with the appellant. It felt perturbed. As we see, there was nothing to take exception to. Correct? Nothing to take exception to. So they have already said, you in your statement of objects and reasons are saying, they have already taken consideration of the fact that such marriages occur. Supreme Court is saying there's nothing to take exception to. This is the Chief Justice of India. So this is your statement of objects and reasons for this law. Right? There was nothing to take. Sorry. Initially, Hadia had declined to go with her father and experienced a desire to stay with the respondent number seven before the High Court, and in the first street it had so directed. The adamantine attitude of the father, possibly impelled by obsessive parental love, compelled him to knock at the doors of the High Court in another habeas corpus petition, whereupon the High Court directed the production of Hadia, who appeared on the given date along with the appellant herein, whom the High Court calls a stranger. She appears with her husband in the court, and the High Court says, No, this man is a stranger. But hadia would insist that she had entered into marriage with him. She had entered into marriage with him. I mean, this, this, is, this is a warped reality, Kushal. True it is that she had gone with the respondent number 7 before the high court. But that does not mean and can never mean that she as a major could not enter into a marital relationship. Of course it doesn't. She can. But the high court unwarrantably took exception to the same Forgetting that parental love or concern cannot be allowed to fluster the right of choice of an adult in choosing a man to whom she gets married. Very important principle. Now, if this is your basic law, that I have the choice to marry whoever I want to marry, then you have a problem with those notice provisions that I read out to you in that act. They are an excessively onerous burden. And that is where the error has crept in. The high court should have after an interaction as regards her choice directed that she was free to go where she wished to. The high court further heard by reflecting upon the social radicalization and certain other aspects in a writ of I mean, they had no business doing all of this. So this is a judgment that basically says you cannot come to us and keep saying love jihad, love jihad, love jihad, but you have no evidence of love jihad. And the High Court has been swayed by the strategy as it thought, adopted by the Respondent Number 7 before it in connivance with the present appellant and others to move Hadiyah out of the country. That is not within the ambit of the rate of habeas corpus. So the NIA investigation occurs. Was Hadia being taken out of the country? National Investigative Authority, by the way. This is the way we spend our time with these massive
0: investigative bodies.
1: What do they come back with? No, it was a valid marriage. Sorry.
0: So the NIA investigated two people getting married. What a, what a country. So, I, I,
1: just, I just want to read one more sentence. The high court in the present case has treaded on an area which, which must be out of bounds for a constitutional court. This is the judgment that your statement of objects and reasons cites to say the Supreme Court has also acknowledged there is a problem. I'm sorry, the Supreme Court has gone and said there was
0: no problem. I'm just I, I'm just trying to think you know the uh, ye ek hota, ka jhatka see now Nikhil okay let's forget uh, now we've covered a okay. lot of my, uh,
1: my uh, initial task of sort of reading out all of these laws I mean that, that bit I have done now right I wanted to get this yeah, that bit I have done, so now I'm happy to take some questions from you. I'll have some other material to show. But at least sort of the, the framework has been
0: set. Let me let me start by asking you some audience questions uh, itself because uh sunsunke. <laughs> <laughs> so Rakesh has asked this question I am a Buddhist. So if I am marrying a Hindu girl, should I explicitly tell that girl I am a Buddhist? I don't have any intention to convert her to Buddhism. <laughs> <laughs> Bola, bhai. No.
1: No, in the
0: eyes of Indian law, you're both Hindus. So that's okay. So though Hindu legal... So, I Article 25 considers Buddhists also as Hindus. So that's not an issue, right? So he's safe. Rakesh, you are safe. Shadi kar le. Okay. No, no, but you had some question. No, no, I will ask you a question. I want to get a few audience questions because okay, uh, okay. They, they... So... Uh, so... Pravard Chaturvedi, has asked recently, Allahabad High Court has made 30 days notice system optional in Special Marriage Act of 1954. Will this let more interfaith couples take up the Special Marriage Act law than uh, the conversion route? In your opinion, is, is that? So, I think you kind of answered that right when you mentioned this that uh, the courts have struck. You know,
1: that, my, my, my point to that judgment is when you say it is optional. What it what the court is actually saying is that. The, See, the the legislative text was not optional. The legislative text was mandatory. So when the Alawal High Court has, as you say, made it optional, what is the option? Why the heck would I exercise that option? Right? Now, if that does not validly apply as a mandate of the law in the context of Special Marriage Act, why does it apply here? The only difference is because there's potentially a conversion. Hmm. Right? That's it. That's all it is. So this will lead me to certain other things. But this is where I want to basically come down to the point of if you pass a law in this manner, you end up with more and more complications. Okay. Now, it may very well turn out that people won't eventually care because what's going to happen is a number of Muslim males are going to get caught and criminalized. Mm -hmm. And a number of Hindu women will be persecuted for having married Muslim men and mm-hmm. marriages will therefore open up. But that serves the central agency concept of how to protect Hinduism perfectly well. Right. And it may very well create more and more political support for it. But as a I matter thought. of principle, matter of principle, I think it's wrong.
0: Yeah. So basically, uh, so this law is not a problem for any inter-Dharmic marriage, right? So so the definition of a Hindu in India, from what I've understood is a, is a kind of a negation. Anybody who's not a, a Christian, Muslim, Sikh and Parsi is considered a Hindu. So basically, uh, I, go, have, I non-
1: have to say this, it is uh, a little little tougher for me to say. Because the definition of religion that I read out to you from this act earlier. Right. So if if that definition of religion applies, it should apply separately to Buddhist and to Hindu as well, potentially. Right. But there is a definition of a religious converter. I really find this phrase itself very hilarious. Religious converter uh, means person of any religion who performs any act of conversion from one religion to another religion. And by whatever name he is called, such as Father, Karmakandi, Maulvi or Mullah. You can see from the examples that they've given, they're focusing more on the Abrahamic sect.
0: Which is fine then. Okay, at least we know where they are aiming this at. At least they have clarity, yeah. right?
1: Well, I mean, they have clarity. But you see, let me be clear about this, Krishna. These laws would be perfectly fine if you could just turn around and say that our constitution and our state is a Hindu state. And if that's not the case, then these laws have a problem.
0: Yeah, if you that's if it. you like secularism, then you should not like this law.
1: Right? It's not even just secularism. I think the problem now, this is not merely on my freedom of religion. This is now hitting the root of my conscience at an individual level. Right? Mm-hmm. And yet, a very real problem that Swapi identifies isn't being covered properly. And I use the word properly. okay? because it's not as if you have policing efforts anything that has been established by law that will create a mechanism for detecting whether there are such such fraudulent marriages happening and to what scale. And Mm -hmm. how do you attack these? See, these laws, the problem with all these kinds of laws is they want to attack the problem after it has occurred. Mm -hmm. Right? They are not going into what do we do as police for situation that may arise prior.
0: So, I it have a that. question Nikhil. So, uh, uh, just a while ago you had mentioned that actually there are enough provisions on the statute books even before this law had come. That could actually in a way deal with many of the problems. Can you tell us a little bit about that then?
1: Yeah, the kidnapping provision. Hang on, I'll just pick up my...
0: Sure, sure, sure. So, guys, uh, as Nikhil picks up his criminal manual, uh, as you see, this is a very interesting law. And uh, uh, as I was listening to Nikhil, all I can say is uh, kudos to our lawmakers who have come up with such a beautiful law, with such beautiful definitions. I have to say, I'm really impressed with our law lawmakers. Uh, we have to give it to them. Uh, nobody can make laws like Indians do. We are just experts at that. So, Nikhil, yeah, tell me. 366 IPC. Okay.
1: Kidnapping, abducting or inducing woman to compel her marriage. Mm. Right? Now, this doesn't focus on conversion at all. And you don't need to. If the problem is the marriage, you don't need to focus on the conversion. Because you are saying this person is forcefully being picked up. True. Right? Now. Whoever kidnaps or abducts any person, woman with intent that she may be compelled or knowing it to be likely that she will be compelled to marry any person against her will or in order to, that she may be forced or to seduce to illicit intercourse or knowing it to be likely that she will be forced or to seduce to illicit intercourse shall be punished with Right. Mm-hmm. Now the answer that you will get back is, but it is not a kidnapping because most women don't know. Right? And the act of kidnapping only arrives after the marriage, so therefore, this section may not apply. Therefore, the conversion is an important aspect. Hmm. Right? Fair enough. You should have then kept your complaint limited to the victim and not to every other blood blood, uh, blood relative around. Hmm.
0: You so, how would, so, so, my, so my, my follow up would be how would they draw that no, uh, I, I uh, want distinction? To,
1: I going to guide you to another provision of law. Okay. Sure is a Dissolution of Muslim Marriage Act 1939. And I mean, I'm dealing with Muslim because it's quite clear that this is all about Muslim marriages. about... Really, the the paradigm we're looking at is Muslim male, Hindu female. Really, that's what we're looking at, right? So, effect of conversion to another faith. The renunciation of Islam by a married woman or her conversion to a faith other than Islam shall not by itself operate to dissolve her marriage. Mm -hmm. Amend this and
0: say it will Yeah, actually, yeah, that's a very fair point. It will. That's it. Yeah, right. and that solves all but, these problems, right?
1: But even as the act stands, even as the act stands, it says, like I said again, the renunciation of Islam by a married Muslim woman or conversion to a faith other than Islam shall not by itself operate to dissolve her marriage, provided that after such renunciation or conversion, the woman shall be entitled to obtain a decree for the dissolution of her marriage or any other grounds mentioned In section 2, further, the provision of this section shall not apply to a woman converted to Islam from some other faith who re embraces her former faith. Right now, what is section 2? Section 2 lists various grounds, they're actually not great, uh, but one of the grounds is actually, this is, I think, cut off. But there was a catch-all ground which says that for any other reason for which dissolution can be granted. So you take a specific example and you say these are cases of fraud where a person's identity was concealed. We are now including that these. Just give a direction to your to your magistrates that if a woman comes forward and says she was duped into marrying a person and then forced into it, she wants to reconvert and dissolve her marriage. If you say, well, no, those women can't be accessed because they are now, uh, uh, they, they simply, there's no access by either family or anybody else. Then you have the kidnapping section. Hmm. But in either case, what? if you access the woman and then she eventually turns around and says, look, for better or for worse, I'm happy. I'm, I'm converted and I'm going to live this life then there's nothing you can do. So therefore, I keep coming back to this before you pass a law, you have to be clear about what you're passing a law about. So maybe the problem is more on the education side. Maybe you need to explain to people that there are variances in legal rights depending on which personal laws you fall under, particularly for women. right? And if you undertake that, that kind of education exercise, maybe you, you, you sort of deal with the problem in a much gentler way right? and possibly generate even more impetus to uh, towards a UCC or towards a homogenization of laws, and, and certainly a gentler, a gentler set of laws for everyone to follow.
0: Yep. Instead of all of this, see, uh, you know what problems I have with this? Uh, at, at as I am listening, to you reading the laws and other provisions available in the law. First of all, <clears throat> the government wants to control my life, which I will never allow. I have a fundamental problem with the government controlling my life because this controls my freedom. When the moment the government starts interfering in the decision making of whom I'm supposed to marry, how I'm supposed to marry, what path am I supposed to follow in terms of my individual spirituality? I mean, the government can't do that. See, what is happening here is, this is my conclusion and I'm not saying these are your views. So please, I want to state it on record. These are my views. This seems to be a place where this is a loser's argument where you can't convert the other person to your idea. So you say, bhi nahi karne dunga. this is my conclusion. Okay. But uh, I think,
1: you know, so you, you've got to look at the larger issue of conversion first, right? One of the sort of lazy principles, misinformed principles, That is often thrown around is that when the Constitution of India permits the freedom of propagation of your religion, there it it does not include the fundamental right to convert, right? All of this is done on the basis of one judgment, which is Reverend Stanislaus versus State of Madhya Pradesh, the 1977 judgment. The problem with the way that statement is phrased is that the subject and the object are altered somewhat. What it actually says is that you as a Padri or a father in this case, because it's it's about a Christian missionary, you don't have the right to compel the conversion of another individual. That is not the same as saying the individual does not have the right to convert. Because when you raise the question in the context of the individual's right to convert, then that is firmly a question of right to life, right to liberty, freedom of conscience, and now privacy.
0: Yeah, so this is what worries me. Where is all of this going to end? Is this going to end where eventually the government will come up with a law that all people who are legally understood as Hindus have zero rights to convert to Christianity, Islam, and all these other religions? Then say it openly and just fr- freaking draft the law and say, Tum wo nahi ban sakte, bas. Game over. This shows that either a. I am being very clear. I know you.
1: Why do they not do that,
0: They don't do that because the law won't allow them to. Because as of now, at least there are some systems in this country.
1: Constitution will not allow it. So you come up with these devices where, in the name of an enabling provision, where you say, "Oh, we are allowing you to convert, but you need to follow these procedures." You set up the kind of procedures that simply can't be followed in reality.
0: Yeah. What see what uh, I repeat this once again. This is such a loser's way of dealing with the problem, which basically shows that Hindus are incapable of convincing people to come back in their own religion.
1: Now uh, I don't know about see I I don't count things that way. I I think Hindu religion is a very vibrant, strong religion. It's a strong community, and it will remain. So I I I don't share the fears others share. But in the context of because you've raised it in the manner in which you have, I want to read out. Parts of the counter affidavit filed by the UP state in the pending constitutional challenge to this ordinance in the Allahabad High Court. There's okay. no replies that have been filed in the Supreme Court as yet, so I have nothing to go by go by over there. But this is in the Allahabad High Court, and it's it, it's a very interesting reading because there is clarity to the framework that they're setting up. I may disagree, agree with the framework, but whatever there is clarity to the framework that they set up. They first again are adventurous enough to define religion. And uh, then they say that the exercise of the right to conscience and to profess, practice religion via the individual right to personal liberty stems the issue of inter-fundamental right as well as intra-fundamental rights on account of the fact that the matters of religion are left to the community for which freedom of conscience has been granted under Article 25 and 26 of the Constitution of India. What does this mean?
0: Is Deepak Chopra writing these laws?
1: Well, this is a counter affidavit, it's not a law, right? So let me tell you what it means. You have the right to conscience and profess, practice religion. This is one side of the right. the individual right to personal liberty is the other side of the right. Okay, now what they're trying to say is that by passing this law, we are trying to settle the conflict between these two situations. Now, the error that they make, and there's a major conceptual error in my view, that first right that I spoke of, which is the right to conscience and to profess, practice a religion, they treat as a group right. This is why I kept telling you the hypothesis I have is they are almost drafting this as a central Hindu protective body, like an Indian, like a Hindu pope. Okay, now let me read on that whenever the personal law comes into play and the individual exercises the right of personal liberty, but the personal law of the community to which the individual wants to enter upon by changing his religion or religious practice causes issues of complexity as the dignity of the individual gets compromised and the individual is not assured equality of status. Thus, what happens is that the individual while exercising the right of personal liberty loses his dignity and equality of status. Uh, of the law or uh, status in the religion which he does not adopt but is trying to take benefit of for some sort of uh, by being in society for the for the I'm sorry, for the memory of the other, I, I don't understand for the membership of the other religion but has only exercised the right of liberty or choice to be association with member of other religion, but is deprived of the benefit as the benefit of the new religion will not be available until and unless conversion takes place. The conversion will be against the choice of the individual who wants to remain in a society and who the member of other religion does not want to leave his faith. Now, what they're trying to say through all this god stuff, as I understand it, thus there is a conflict of interest, which is an issue addressed by means of instant legislation where an inter-fundamental right of the individual is safeguarded. What they're trying to say Is on the one side you have a freedom of conscience to convert. On the other, you have the you have the religious freedom and the equality of all religions, but by being forced into a position to convert by these inducements, allurements, etc., as they as they call it, your equality of equal treatment of all religions suffers. Am I being clear? Yeah. Right? So your exercise of the conscience, the freedom of conscience to convert is actually an impairment of the equality of all religions in the eyes of the law.
0: It's so stupid. This entire premise is so stupid.
1: What have they done? What have they done? And and I'm going to read this next bit to you because of this, right? That so far, as intra-fundamental rights are concerned, these fundamental rights are the rights of the individual, We rights of the community. It has been well settled. The community interest will always prevail over the individual interest.
0: This is written in the affidavit file. Yeah, buddy.
1: The uh, so, societal interest has been held in the catena of decisions by the Honorable Supreme Court to be a public interest. And wherever, wherever there is public interest involved, and the public interest will always be placed at a higher pedestal than the individual interest. What is this public interest? Then They explain this. That when there is a fear psychosis spread in the community at large and the community itself is endangered. This is Hindu khatre mein hai bhai. Community itself is endangered and succumbs to the pressure resulting in forceful conversion. Under the circumstances, it becomes necessary that the interest of the community as a whole requires protection and no micro analysis of individual interest can be looked into. Here it is clarified that the interest is to be distinguished from group thinking. This is, this is the basis of your law.
0: Hmm. So if I was to conclude now, because we are already at an hour and eight minutes. So I, I want to have a, a little bit of a yeah, last short for us. No, no, I, there's some other material I want to cover. Don't,
1: don't rush me. Ball, ball,
0: ball, 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 ball.
1: This is the framework that they've set out, right? Now, in this framework, what they also do, is they are kind enough to give us examples of forceful conversions. Right? Here's what they say. Mr. X is a member of Scheduled Cast. A group of missionaries visit the colony where he resides with Scheduled Caste persons. These missionaries allure every member in the colony that they have a training school for nursing, and in case if you start believing in God and start reading the Bible, we will provide you a nurse's training course free of cost and thereafter. In the hospital, which is run by a particular community, you will be given job of a nurse, and ultimately, you will be in service of God. Thereby, you will be providing service to the community at large, provided you believe in God and leave your faith, as this faith only treats you as scheduled caste and looks down upon you. Being allowed by such assurances and to be given a decent job, the entire scheduled caste community, c- colony decides to convert themselves to that particular community and save their faith. This amounts to forceful
0: conversion. Please tell me what is forceful in this? Uh- you can call it predatory, but it is not forceful. It is predatory. It may be immoral. Yeah, it is immoral. It is, it is, immoral. It is immoral.
1: But it is not illegal. I, That's the problem. Look, my conscience is a fungible, fungible commodity in my hand. Sorry to say this in in such crude terms. My conscience is a cash card in my hand, boss. I can try to use it as I want to use it.
0: Hmm. Okay. And the point so is, what th- is stopping from the Hindus to do the same tactics and lure the other people back to their fault?
1: This is what I'm trying to get at. In this context, I gave you the example of minority institutions have certain protections under the constitution anyway. These, this example only shows that that minority community is coming forward and saying, look, we have these benefits under the law. We're exercising these benefits under the law. You also get the same benefits under that law. Hmm. How can that be allurement?" If the other law anyway permits it, you can't call it allurement. It is a total legal compliance. Hmm. Right? An adult Hindu woman makes her choice to marry a Muslim boy. The personal law does not give, give the Hindu women a full status as wife as she is deprived of inheritance. Right? So she has to give up her idol worship, has to give up various things to become a Muslim. Therefore, even though Hindu women... Wishes, wishes not to give up her faith, but she will have to give up her faith in order to enter into a valid marriage and accept Islam as her faith. This will amount to forceful conversion. You know, this is this is an example, Kushal, of if you want certain things in life, tough choices arise sometimes. You want to maintain your faith? Please maintain your faith. If the person that you want to be with is shallow enough to say you will have to convert, to be with me, and you choose to do so, you're allowed to do so. The state cannot enter upon you and say, this was invalid. Mm -hmm. Now, if you call this a forceful conversion, then let's be crystal clear. This means every single marriage, right, by a Hindu girl, who converted to Islam to marry a Muslim boy is under question. And I will show to you why I put it to that breadth. Because there is one uh, cardinal provision of the act that I left out reading, because I wanted to read it at this stage. Mm-hmm. Huh? The burden of proof as to whether a religious conversion was not affected through misrepresentation, force, undue influence, coercion, allurement, or by any fraudulent means or by marriage lies on the person who has caused the conversion and where such conversion was facilitated by any person on such other person. Hmm. So the burden is on you. The police, all they need, therefore, is one complaint by some random blood relative that this was an interfaith marriage. And we say that there was supposed to. Be.
0: You know, this sounds a lot like 498A. I,
1: I mean, I, I don't know in what way you say that.
0: No, it's a 498A. Maybe you can drag the whole family. Anybody in the family can complain on behalf of the girl and you can
1: to the effect. But let's be clear, 498A's underlying premise was cruelty. And that cruelty against women was a visible aspect of Indian society. Dowry demands were a visible aspect of Indian society. Right? Yeah, dowry but Nikhil, the then I
0: can come back to you and say even conversion is a visible reality of our society.
1: Yeah, but conversion by itself is not the same uh, uh, value judgment that burning bright for dowry is.
0: Okay, then, then let, Nikhil, let me play uh, the devil's advocate here. Then somebody will come and say, but what do you do when there is an asymmetry in a society where there is a faith which has fundamentally no concept of proselytization beyond a point? Although I don't agree. I think Hindus were proselytizing people. How did Hinduism South East Asia? So that, but let us assume current Hinduism is not very proselytizing, and then you have an active proselytizing system in India. Then how do you deal with the asymmetry if you are not going to change the fundamental nature of the faith? Then you'll have to come up with laws like this, right?
1: Uh, I, I think these laws also deal with what is called as mass conversion, right? Okay. I understand concepts sort of mass conversion being problematic mm-hmm. because they create an immediate And large scale law is not a problem in that area. Mm -hmm. Right? You are a a group of missionaries. You descend upon a tribal community. You disrupt their... Which, by the way, you disrupt their way of life. Which, by the way, everybody will otherwise stand up and say they have a right to life. for example, the right to maintain their life as they have it. For example, Mm -hmm. the way Rahul Gandhi went to A.M. Giri and said these people must be maintained exactly as they are. Forgetting altogether that their life situation was worse than... Was well, as bad as it gets, they're eating leaves and their life, their lifespans are less than 40 years of age, right? Mm-hmm. But a traditional way of life must be preserved. So when you say traditional way of life, there must be preserved. Now you can't come and say mass conversions will be enough. Right? So I understand the mass conversion problem. You can have a law on mass conversion saying, look, this is going to create a war at the ground level because what you can't have are the religion warrior, religious warriors of one side and then not expect the religious warriors of the other side to react. So the problem arises when these laws move to the individual domain, right? This is why I say, had you done it by data, if you could have gone and said, we've done the research, we've figured out that the grooming problem is a genuine, larger, maybe a maybe a loosely worded, I'll put it this way, loosely worded conspiracy. But there appears to be a, a strategic element to this, right? And we can hmm. see how it's being affected, Right. So in the context of that, when grooming became an obvious and large problem in the UK, hmm. how did they go about the, the past very detailed legislation dealing with many aspects of grooming that arise before the grooming is successful? Right? But that requires police capacity, that requires state capacity and what it would create is different layers and systems. At the first level, if you are trying to group, because those were, that was in the context of minors, let me just address that in the context of minors. If you were an adult trying to fish within a chat room, say, with 15-year-olds or otherwise sitting, you would be cautioned by the police. Hmm. And if you were cautioned, if you repeated that behavior, you would then be prosecuted after. And the physical manifestation of something of like of, of an online chat room could be, for example... A school playground or a community playground where the children play. If you are constantly present there and you're trying more than twice to talk to a child, that number was given. Right? Then you are, then, then you can be cautioned and if not just cautioned, You can, things can proceed further depending on the nature of your various actions. This is hmm. how you discover what the strategies and methods of persons engaging in such activities are. And this is how you arrive at prosecutions in Rochdale and other, other cities. that they were actually grooming groups. Hmm. Grooming acts. In the case of UP in Uttarakhand, you are in no position to come up with that kind of finding.
0: Uh, you know, I, I would say uh, it, it, there could be a position. It's just that, as always, we lack rigor in our society. We don't do data documentation of cases and stuff like that. I definitely believe grooming is a reality in our society where one side grooms the Hindus uh, consistently. I, I mean, look, yeah. look, grooming
1: may be a reality, but it's not going to be only an inter-religious reality. It will be a larger reality. There is a problem with people trying to groom women of all, all types. Okay, there will be. It will be a caste reality if you want to look at it from that lens. It will be a, a, a religious reality if you want to look at it from that lens. But it really is an asymmetry between male and female power when it comes to sexual relations in society. Right? Mm-hmm. And, and so that problem exists. And so therefore, you need a larger policing effort to deal with it. Now, you can decide whether you want that policing effort to be done without regard to religion mm-hmm. or caste. Or do you want it done with regard to them? And if you do it with regard to them, how many other different kinds of rights do you trample upon? As opposed to if you were to do it at, an individ- at a more secular scale, a secular manner.
0: Got it. So, See, for what bothers me when I listen to laws like this is on the one side, we have societal realities which are absolutely glaring in front of us where predatory proselytization is just a reality of our society, whether we like it or not. People are preying on, you know, poor Hindus and trying to convert them. And then you have the Indian state, which has control of Hindu temples. So Hindus don't have access to their funds the way other faiths do. So first of all, there, uh, I would, you know... I would just say that I would have opposed this law even more tooth and nail if this government would have let go of the Hindu temples. Let Hindus have access to their own funds. And then you have two bodies fighting each other out. Let the best man win. Because in that case, the rules of the game are fair.
1: But, then, but I'm sorry. There, there is some... I mean, you know, in, in the context of Uttarakhand, for example, uh, people that we call as tracks, right, on Twitter, have fought and consistently fought for maintaining government control of Hindu temples. Because oh, absent oh, that government... No,
0: no, because no. no, no. I, don't think, have, I don't think... Yes,
1: so. they have. Yes, they have absent that government control, most of these temples will fade
0: away. So in Uttarakhand, the case has been that the BJP support base wants to have those temples there. But the, the, the group that I know of that speaks the most about temple freedom is actually very consistent. They don't want it in Uttarakhand either, from what I've understood.
1: I mean, I've read what I've read and and from what I'm clear, I I think the number of people now saying, you see, when you talk about freedom for Hindu temples, it's a very, it it gets distorted by looking at the subset that that you examine, right? So if you examine Tirupati and such size scale temples, it seems unfair that Hindus don't have access to their own funds in that way. But... These legislation also include many other temples which would otherwise fail if government
0: intervention didn't exist. Right? Fair enough. So you need, but you need, but then you, you need can more. Make an ordinance, Nikhil. Hear me out. No, you no, can no, give no, an no, ordinance. No, no, making
1: this a principled argument. I look. I totally agree that government shouldn't be interfering in these spheres in this manner. I totally. I mean, that that's the bottom line that we're both driving at. I think. Right. So I, it's not as if I. That is, to me, the same kind of intervention that this is. Why why are you involved in all this? The only limited level to which you need to be involved is that you can't violate Article 17, 18 of the Constitution. That is, there can't be any untouchability. There can't be any denial of access. Articles 25, 26, 27. The public temples have to be open to all who are worshippers. It can't be limited by caste. It can't be limited by community. It can't be limited by creed. That also creates problems because there are certain temples that start off as private temples and they are then limited to a certain community. But then because of their scale and because of their piety, acquire a larger public reverence. Right now, the argument that is made is that if we are free to exercise our rights of administration over this temple, we can choose which communities can enter. And inevitably, the arc falls against caste. Yeah,
0: that but should the not- owners sir- of the onus of making sure a temple survives is of the community, not of the government.
1: I completely agree, but the only reason why I can think of why temples can't be granted freedom is the issue of caste. Otherwise I, I don't I, I don't see a good argument against it.
0: Yeah, but the caste angle is overblown. We already have enough laws on the statute books that take care of the caste angle that uh, people can be charged irrespective of whether temples are under government control or not. And secondly, uh, or the government can do this. Those temples that want to remain under government control can remain. Those who want to go can uh, get out. Government can give an opt-in option.
1: You resolve these issues, and then you can do. I mean, I have no issues. Again, like I'm coming back to the same point. These are details that we're discussing on the larger point. I don't like state intervention in these matters, and certainly not the manner of state intervention that we're discussing over. Here.
0: All this right. Extremely- okay, cool. so, so let's now let's wrap it up, Nikhil, because it's an hour, uh, almost an hour and thirty minutes. We're at hour twenty-three. So here's my last question or query from you. So basically what we have through these laws is, it is quite clear that uh, these laws fundamentally make these a priori assumption yeah. that uh, when it comes to the matter of interfaith marriage, the, the the whims and fancies of the collective far more outweigh the whims and fancies of the individual. Am I right or wrong? Yeah. Yeah. So, okay. So there you there goes your uh, freedom. Uh,
1: uh, uh, just to add to that. However, the law as it stands says marriage is entirely an individual choice. So, therefore, that that conflict is created by these laws.
0: So, basically, this is like... it is like Schrödinger's marriage. It is there but it is not there.
1: It is not Schrödinger's marriage. The law... because in in Schrödinger's case, the cat is one and the same. Here we have two cats. One is a set of law... a set of judgments and laws that are already set from the beginning. Repeatedly and repeatedly in various contexts. Once you reach the age of majority, choosing your life partner is entirely your choice. But you have state legislatures who are different, who then come and say, "Oh, but we have a cow out here."
0: Hmm. So based, so in that case, what this leads to is a clear-cut case. Uh, I think the intent of the law is to send a message across to maybe a section of Indian society that uh, indulges, and which I believe uh, is, uh, uh, although I will have to start producing data now. But I believe the grooming problem is real. It is serious. And I think the intent of the law is to send a message, I guess, to a section of society that indulges in this pathetic act of grooming. That now if you do this, we are also capable of coming up with laws like this. I think this law will most probably be struck down. At least the UP one from what I have heard is going to be struck down by the Allahabad yeah, High I, Court.
1: Nothing will get struck down in entirety. It will get struck down in various parts. But it will not get struck down entirely. entirety. I don't think it will. And the reason why it won't is that laws against religious conversion of any way been upheld. It's just a matter of what details that we're looking at, right? That, that's the real
0: question. I think so the I, ultimate solution, Nikhil, and this will be my last question to you would be, is, isn't is the ultimate solution for all of this, we uh, uniform civil code with a special marriage act kind of provision, when that's the end of all these issues? I mean, this sounds like a perfect case for a uniform civil code, right?
1: So... You know what this does, that that entire, uh, and I'll come to the, because I'm coming to the content of what that Uniform Civil Code should imply, that entire provision I read out where you need to have a 60-day notice period for declaring that you are willfully converting, etc. The simple solution is register all marriages with the state. Get rid of this idea that a marriage is valid without state registration, right? Get rid of that idea. That means every person who wants to get married has to, be, has to appear before a governmental authority and say, yes, we got married and we're happy with our marriage. At least you will have that protection, that layer of protection. My point is a simple one. These kinds of issues need gentler intervention if individual rights are to be preserved. If we have now decided, and this is why I come back to that hypothesis, that the individual right is too weak because this is thematically the uh, the sentiment amongst a lot of Hindu majority and particularly in uh, Hindu majoritarian persons, if the idea is that the individual right is not a strong enough protection against the supposed onslaught of the Abrahamic, and that the only way you can respond is by a collective right, and we simply accept this, then you can kiss individual rights
0: goodbye. Right? Yeah, These I are think-
1: the things that are at stake here. These are yeah, the yeah,
0: things I that are at stake. I totally agree with you. And I think this has been a fundamental assumption in India a long time because any country that has uh, restrictions on free speech assumes uh, on group rights above individual rights. Uh, This is a classic case. uh, It is just what is happening is we have a concept creep in different areas of our life. This concept creep has now attained... uh, 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 entered in the realm of uh, interfaith marriage. See, it's very interesting. In free speech, it was always to protect the right of the Abrahamics. This time it has been done to protect the right of the Hindus. In India, there is no such thing as an individual. It is always group rights worth of one versus group rights of others. So, I guess uh, this is just another one of those days where uh, uh, we just have to accept this thing.
1: No, no, no. no. I mean, you, you see, you very, very simply you have gone and said that this is... The protection of Hindus, I think there are Hindus who are losing their individual rights in the course of this.
0: I agree. And I'm one of those Hindus who's opposed to this. But uh, like I just said, I mean,
1: I, I don't think it's a case of just simply accept because something's at stake. Because if I do that, then I am accepting that central uh, centralized Hindu authority, I don't, I don't want to, even if it comes in the Gao or constitutionally enacted government passing a val- constitutionally valid, constitutionally, procedurally valid law. Let's not go into substantive because substantively I have a problem, but proceed. Valid. Even if it takes that garb, takes that form to arrive, conceptually and in principle, it's problematic.
0: Hmm. That's true. I agree with you. Anyways, it's time to wrap it up, guys. It's an hour and a half. I think we, we should wrap it up. But before we wrap uh, today's discussion, I want to first start by thanking Nikhil for coming And I don't know how he read that law with a very straight face. So I have to give full marks to <laughs> Nikhil for that. So uh, so as always, buddy, thanks a lot for coming on the podcast and educating all of us about this wonderful law. Uh, all right, guys. So time to wrap it up. If you like what I'm doing over here, please support the podcast, like the video, comment. I think you guys should comment and share your views. Uh, if you have any further questions from Nikhil, maybe you can go on uh, Nikhil's Twitter handle and uh, ask few questions to Nikhil. Uh, If you like what I'm doing over here, you can become a member of the YouTube channel or you can join and support the podcast on patreon.com. You can go to KushalMera.com and buy the merchandise of the podcast too. Uh, I try my best to give you both perspectives. I got Swati in and Swati gave you the perspective of the ground reality. Nikhil has done nothing but read the law to you. Now it is up to you whether you like it or not. Always remember the more you let the government and I will leave you with these thoughts, the more you let the government dictate what you want to do with your life. Always remember, governments change and when governments change, the thinking changes. So stupid people let the government dictate their lives. Smart people let the individual have his or her or whatever Z, Zer, whatever your gender is, have their own say in their own life. So think about this. I'll leave it for that today. I'll see you guys next time. Until then, namaste, take care, goodbye.